you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one somewhere around you, and we'll be on page 991 in that uh, hardback black one if you don't have one around you. If you are a guest with us this morning, I want to say a special welcome to you uh, in particular. Um, and for some of us, we may need to move towards, if you can, we've got some folks coming in, if you'll move towards the um, windows a little bit so the folks flow in, we can find easier seats, uh, or they can find a seat a little bit easier. Um, but First Timothy chapter 1, again, page 991 in the hardback black Bibles that are somewhere around you. As you're making your way there, um, one of the irritating grenades that columnists and journalists and pundits will sometimes like try to lob at Christianity is that Christians are inconsistent. This is the claim they make. Christians are inconsistent in their observance of the Old Testament law and that we just pick and choose those laws we want to observe and we throw out those that we don't want to observe. We, we ignore certain ones and we keep certain ones. And so, if, for example, in the homosexual debate, they'll be like, well, if you're going to hold to that, then you need to stop eating pork. You need to stop eating shellfish. You need to stop wearing clothes made of two different fabrics. You need to start stoning adulterers. If you're going to be consistent, then you need to do these things as well. And so someone will say that and someone will copy and paste it on Facebook and people are like, oh, snap, they just blew the Christians up. When the only thing they blew up was any credibility to be able to speak intelligently about the Bible. Because they've just proven that they have no clue what they are talking about. Because if they actually read the Bible, they would see that theologically there are Old Testament laws that we are not to observe anymore. And there are Old Testament laws that we are to observe still. And the difference between these is because the whole thing that the Old Testament is about, the coming Messiah, has come. And that changes some things. And so now there are certain laws that have been fulfilled. They were pointers to Christ. He has fulfilled them and we don't observe them anymore. And then there are others that are eternal and that are just very much the character and nature of, Christ, of God. And since God cannot change, these cannot change. But it's not just columnists and journalists and pundits that get confused about the relationship between the Old Testament law and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Christians as well. It's us as well. And this is exactly what's going on in the book of First Timothy in the, the, the church at Ephesus. Right? When, when Paul writes this letter to them, they are confused about the relationship between the Old Testament law and the gospel. And there's some false teachers who have come in. And so just contextually, Paul had pastored. He had planted and pastored the, the church at Ephesus for two to three years. And at the writing of this letter, it's 48 months since he last saw them. And in that 48 months, false teachers, okay, heretical elders had risen up from among them, as he had said might happen in Acts 20, had risen up from among them and were apparently teaching some mixture of 
myths and genealogies and like a, a genetic progression that you had to have in in along with that, that you could, with enough effort and enough determination, keep the Old Testament law. Which is what we're going to see today is the exact opposite of what the law is all about. The opposite of what the true purpose of the law is. And so Paul writes, chapter 1 here, verses 8-11, through 11, in order to set the record straight to them and to us today, about what the true purpose of the law is and how we are to use it rightly. And so that's where we're going to be going this morning. The right use of the law. And it's, it's going to be a little heavy on explanation today and a little wider on application from what I normally do. But hopefully, once we get to the end of our time together this morning, it will be helpful to you as you move forward understanding better the relationship between the Old Testament law and the gospel for growth as we move forward as Christians. So we've got a lot of work to do, and so let's uh, get to work. I want to start back in verse 3, not verse 8. I want to start back in verse 3, which is kind of the wrong use of the law, and then we'll roll into verses 8 through 11 with kind of the right use of the law. And so look at verse 3 with me. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, this is Paul talking to Timothy here, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. They're teaching this mixture of stuff with the wall. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And so he, now he takes a little aside to talk about the right use of the law. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so look back at verse 8 though. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And so the first thing we need to get our arms around is just exactly what is the law? And we can answer that question by talking about the law's first purpose. It's very first purpose, all right? It's first use. And so, number one, in your notes, it is to reveal God's holiness and moral standards. Okay? This is what, it, it, this is what the law, the first purpose is to reveal God's holiness and moral standards. It, this is what the law is. It is God's revelation of His holiness and moral standards. And that word revelation is key. Because without, and John prayed this earlier, without God's 
self-revelation of Himself, we would have no way to know, one, if God even existed. And then, if, if He does what He's like, without God revealing Himself to us. And so God has revealed Himself to us in two ways. All right? The first is what's called general revelation. And it's where we can just kind of look out at the world and we can look at the complexity of the billions and billions of stars and galaxies. And so just macro this complexity of all that God has made. Or we can drill down to the microscopic level and the complexity of a single cell and all that goes on there. And we can just I mean, these things are just screaming at us. There is a God who has intentionally designed and wired the world. Look, see, he exists. He's real. So this is general revelation. We can just see it as we observe nature. But general revelation, you know, it's enough to tell us that there is a God, but it's not enough to really tell us anything about this God. And for that, we need special revelation. That's the second one. So you got general revelation, special revelation. All right. And so special revelation, that's the second way God reveals himself. And, and, and that is right here. This is God's special revelation. And a lot of people in society today want, want to discount that. They want to be like, man, it is so arrogant of you to take the Bible at face value and claim that Christianity is the only way. And so a lot of times what they'll do is they'll appeal to uh, a fairly well-known poem that speaks of blind men observing an elephant. And so in the poem, one blind man touches the side of the elephant. He's like, it's a wall. And another one grabs the, the tail. And he's like, oh, it's a rope. And another one grabs um, the ear. And he's like, hey, it, this is a fan. And on and on and on and on. and Okay? And the whole point of the poem is that that's what we're like with God. We're all just blind men with this elephant. We all think we know what we're touching, but we're all blind. And so one religion may have a few aspects right about God here, and another religion has another one over here, but it's, we're all just blind people with an elephant. Now, there are two flaws with this illustration. The first is that while everyone is supposedly only seeing one small aspect of God, the narrator sees it all. And so he's not even playing by that. All of them are wrong, but I know the truth. I can see the full elephant. And so now, who's the one who's really being arrogant? I've got it right. Everyone else is wrong. So that's one flaw. But the one that I want to pick up for us today, a second flaw, is what would happen if suddenly the elephant talked and said, I'm an elephant. Stop guessing. I'll tell you who I am. I'm an elephant. All right. Now, all of a sudden, out, out of, you know, we are no longer blind, feeling around in the dark. Now he has told us, well, I don't know. Maybe we should be humble and just let it be a myth. Hello, I'm an elephant. He speaks. He talks. He tells us who he is. And this is exactly what God has done through the Bible. 
We are no longer blind men feeling around, trying to figure things out in the dark. He has revealed Himself to us. He has spoken. This is special revelation. God has told us who He is. And in particular, in the Old Testament, He has revealed to us His absolute holiness and moral standards. And He's done so in part by giving us commandments. And the first ones, and probably the most well-known ones, would be what? Ten commandments, right? That's probably the most well-known, and those are the first ones, but those are just the first ones. If you count them all up, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. So those are just the first ten. And all of them, again, are to reveal to us God's holiness and moral standard. That's their driving purpose. And so 613, all right? But we can categorize these into three great big categories. And so write this down. Ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. Okay? Ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. Got it? Ceremonial laws, civil laws, and moral laws. And so listen close. The ceremonial and the civil laws were temporary laws that have been fulfilled in Christ and thus are no longer binding on the world today. Messiah has come. He has fulfilled these. These are over. Ceremonial and civil. But the moral law of God is eternal and is still binding and always will be for all eternity because it reflects the image of God Himself which cannot shift or change. And so ceremony on civil, no longer binding. Moral law is. And this is what Paul is getting at in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, these, speaking of the ceremonial and the civil laws, uh, from verse 16, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so he's saying these things were to point forward to Christ, but now he has come, he has fulfilled them. And so Hebrews 10.1 similarly says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And so listen to me, the, the Old Testament talks a lot about all of these sacrifices that are offered in the temple to atone for sin and so that the people could approach a holy God. And so you've got this whole set of these complex rules for ceremonial cleanness, right? If you've read the Old Testament, you will come across this. And it deals with foods that you could and you could not eat, what clothes you can and cannot wear, what you could and could not touch, how you're to bathe, all right, on and on and on. And so if these were still in effect, I would be unclean today because I pulled some trash out of my outside trash can this week, which when mixed with water and all the pooper scooping I have to do now is disgusting. Unclean. But the whole point of all this ceremonial stuff was to convey to the Israelites then and even to us today that we are spiritually unclean. 
And we are sinners and we cannot come into God's presence without being purified. Alright? But now, Jesus has come. He has come. And He has made all who believe pure. He's made us clean, rendering all these ceremonial laws obsolete. They've been fulfilled in Christ. This is a central point of the entire book of Hebrews. When Jesus died on the cross, the, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, showing that we now have direct access to God. And so the entire sacrificial system with all of its ceremonial laws has been done away with because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the once for all time sacrifice. And so Hebrews 10 verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until His enemy should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so in Christ, the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. Jesus has made us clean. He's offered a once for all sacrifice, not just dying in our place, but giving to us his righteousness, giving to us his cleanliness so that we are clean. And we don't have to go through these laws anymore. So the ceremonial law has been fulfilled. It's no longer binding. What about civil laws? Civil laws. What are civil laws? Well, in redemptive history, God started with the nation of Israel, right? He started with Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They and all their families go to Egypt in the midst of a famine. Over time, they wind up becoming slaves. After being in Egypt for 400 years, God rescues them from slavery, brings them out of the land, takes them to the promised land eventually. In the process of that, He gives them the Old Testament, gives them the Ten Commandments and makes them a, a nation, all right, under God. God's their king. And so in the U.S., we have a democracy. Actually, we have a republic, but we have laws that govern, you know, the way we uh, are to live. There are laws. The nation of Israel, at least for a brief period of time, was a theocracy with its ultimate king being God. And there were civil laws in place for the governance of the nation. And those laws gave civil consequences, since God's the king here, to moral sin to show the seriousness of sinning against a holy and all-supreme God. And so sins like adultery and incest were punishable with civil sanctions like execution. All right, And this is to show the seriousness of sinning against a holy God. But with the end of the Hebrew theocracy and the coming of Christ, these civic laws have come to an end. The church is not a civil government. We don't stone people. So if you're thinking about joining our church, don't, no stoning happens here. But we do hold one another accountable and we call one another to repentance for their own good and joy. And, and so at worst, we would exercise the full extent of church discipline, which is removal from membership. But even then, that's with the hope of restoration. 
And this is how Paul deals with the case of incest in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go read about that yourselves. And so because Jesus has come, lived, died, been buried, resurrected, ascended back into heaven, the ceremonial and civil laws are no longer binding today. And so this is not just a random picking of this one and picking of that one. It's based upon the fact that Jesus has come and fulfilled them. And for us to go back and live under those walls would be for us to actually deny Christ and say that his sacrifice was not sufficient. Okay, and so again, theologically, there are reasons for our observance of some Old Testament walls and not others. Civil and ceremonial have been fulfilled and are no longer binding. But as I said, the moral wall is still binding and always will be because it's a reflection of God's nature, his absolute holiness, his integrity, his love, his faithfulness, and these things cannot change. So when ceremonial, temporal, moral law, eternal. And you can see the moral law, the, the, how it's eternal, like and, and present from the dawn of time, long before God had handed you know, the Ten Commandments down to Moses and the people of Israel. The moral law is present from, the, from Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. I mean, when Cain kills Abel, Ten Commandments have not been handed out. But when Cain kills Abel, it's called sin. And again, thou shalt not kill has not been handed down, yet it's still sin. Still called that. So the moral law of God was present already. How? Because it's a reflection of God's nature and character and as such is eternal. That's why Paul gets after the guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who's having incestual sex. He's not stoning him anymore because the civil law is gone, but he is calling him out for breaking the moral law of God and calling him to repentance because it still stands. And so the moral law is still binding. Okay? Which means that everything in the Old Testament about loving our neighbor caring for the poor, being generous with our possessions, social relationships, a commitment to our family, caring for the environment, the Ten Commandments, all of this are still in force. Okay, It's still wrong, it's still sinful to murder, to lie, to steal, to take God's name in vain, to engage in any sexual activity outside of the bonds of biblical marriage, whether that's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin. Outside of the bonds of marriage, one man, one woman, all sexual activity. We could talk about inclination, that may be different. But all activity is a choice. You engage or you don't engage. Activity is a choice. And all activity outside of biblical marriage, one man, one woman, is sin. All of it. So it's not homosexual versus heterosexual. Everything outside of this. This is moral law of God. And it's still in effect. And always will be. Because it's a reflection of the unchanging nature and character of God. And so the first purpose of the law is to reveal God's holiness and moral standards. That's the first purpose. Second purpose is to show us that we don't measure up. That we don't measure up to His holiness or His moral standards. 
In other words, second purpose of the law, and this is in your notes, is to expose our sinfulness and condemnation. All right, it's to expose our sinfulness and condemnation. And so look at verse 8 again in 1 Timothy. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. All right? And this is tongue-in-cheek from Paul because Paul knows that no one is righteous outside of Christ. And so he's not saying, hey, there might be some legitimately just people out there. They are you know, legit righteous people that are out there. He's not saying that, but he is saying there are plenty of people who think they are. And therefore, they are actually incapable of being saved because they don't think they have any reason to repent or ask for forgiveness. If you will not repent, you do not think you have anything to repent or ask for forgiveness for. How can you be a believer when it's called to repent and believe? And this is the danger and the damnation of self-righteousness. That's why Jesus himself said, I came not to call the so-called righteous, those who think they are, but sinners. And so the second purpose of the wall is to help arouse our consciousness to the fact of who we truly are. To expose our sinfulness and our condemnation and show us that we Okay, we, again, verse 8, we are the lawless and the disobedient. We are the ungodly sinners. We are unholy and profane. Left to ourselves, this is who we are. We do not measure up to God's standard of holiness and His moral standards. None of us do. Romans 3, no, not one. I mean, even we just go Ten Commandments. Just hanging on the wall in preschool classroom, base ethics. Even if we just go there, we all fail. And that's actually what Paul does in this passage. He walks through aspects of commandments five through nine. Look at it with me. He says that the wall is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Well, commandment five is to honor your father and mother. He says it's for murderers. Well, commandment six, do not commit murder. He says it's for sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Well, commandment seven, do not commit adultery, i.e. don't engage in any sexual activity outside of marriage. Then he says enslavers. And Paul is basically saying this is the worst extent of the eighth commandment to not steal that there could ever be. And so how southern Christians and pastors stuck their head in the sand and manipulated and mutilated God's Word to get around this and so many other verses in the Bible that condemn chattel slavery, I have no clue. At worst, or no, at best, they were deceived. At worst, a whole lot worse. But he keeps going. He says, liars, perjurers. Ninth commandment. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness, right? And then he says, anything else contrary to sound doctrine. That is to say that all sin first arises out of unsound doctrine. That wrong belief 
will lead to wrong behavior. And that even works a little bit inverse. Wrong behavior has a connotation on your belief as well. They, they play together. And so the wall, it, it exists. Its second purpose is to show us our simple, to show us that we all fail because none of us have honored our fathers and mothers perfectly. None of us have like avoided always and completely unrighteous anger, which Jesus says is the same as murder. All of us have some level of sexual immorality to one degree or another. All of us have lied at some point. We've stolen. I didn't steal. You ever take a paper clip from work? Did you buy that? No. On and on and on we could go. We've all failed. And that's the second purpose of the wall to expose us that we are sinful. That we are depraved. And therefore, we are condemned by God. And so we're in need of a Savior. And this is the third purpose of the wall to lead us to Christ for salvation, to show us that we need a Savior. And verse 11 says that all of this is in accordance with the gospel. That is to point us to Christ. And so when you think of the wall, you can think of it as like a thermometer or a mirror or um, an x-ray machine. So a thermometer. A thermometer can tell you that you are sick. But can that thermometer heal you? No. A mirror can show you that you're dirty. But can that mirror clean you? No. An x-ray machine can show you that you're broken inside. But can it fix you? No. And this is the same thing with the law. It is a diagnostic tool to show you your brokenness and then to point you, because it can't do it, but point you to healing. And what's the whole Old Testament law about? The Messiah. The whole thing is pointing to the Messiah, to the Savior, to one who will come and rescue you. And so that's what God did. He sent Jesus to rescue us. And so what he did first is he lived and fulfilled perfectly the moral law that none of us have. He did. He's sinless. Jesus did that in our place since none of us have. And God demands it. Jesus did it. All right? And through faith, when we trust him, he gives that to us. He gives us his righteousness. So that's what he did. But then all this sin on our side that we have, that we like God has wrath against and we absolutely and undeniably deserve his punishment. All of that was laid upon Jesus and he suffered and died in our place for our sins as a substitute so that we don't have to. And so Jesus lived this life of sinlessness, you know, that none of us have lived a life without sin. And then he died the death that we've all been condemned to die, death for sin. And then three days later, he rose again to give anyone who would believe a gift that we could never, ever earn forgiveness of sin. This is the gospel. And this invitation is open to anyone. All right. Anyone at all. There are no prerequisites to this. Anyone at all who would just repent and believe. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the gospel. And when that happens, 
You repent. You believe. You are made pure. You are clean. You are justified. You are saved. You are born again, as Jesus describes it in John 3. When that happens, you are given a new heart. And this new heart has new desires. And it has new motivations. And, and, and there's a love for God that now overflows into obedience. And so listen close. Obedience is not a condition of knowing God. Rather, it is a sign that one does know God. Does that make sense? Obedience is not a condition of knowing God, but it is a sign that one does know God. And so the law, right, the moral law, it shows us that we're sinners. And then it leads us to the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in our place for our sins. And then the gospel, all, right, all these new desires, new motivations that have been birthed in our heart now leads us right back to the law for our sanctification. And listen to me. Joy. For our joy. Because God's moral law it's how he designed, look right at me, it's how he designed the world to work. It's how he, it, it, so he knows better than we do. And so if you want to live in joy, love God and obey him. If you are a Christian, fighting to walk in obedience before the Lord is fighting for your joy. That's what you're doing. You've got to see that when I stand up here or someone else stands up here and we implore you to obey God, we are fighting for your joy. And so when God says dating works like this, when He says marriage works like this, when He says sex works like this, that is not God trying to take things away from you. Ha <laughs> ha, I'll make him struggle. That is not what he's doing. That is him trying to lead you into joy. Because he designed the universe. He designed all these things. He knows how it works best. He's for you and he's trying to lead you. And so trust him in this. Fight to obey Him. Fight to follow Him. That's what the whole book really is about. This good fight. And we are to fight the good fight of the faith. We are to fight to obey. Fight against our sinful inclinations. Seek to follow Christ with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul. And so the application, if you are, if the application, if you are not a Christian, is to see that you are a sinner. Purpose number two. Purpose number three leads you to Christ. That's what the law. If you are a Christian, the application here is to fight for obedience. Not as a prerequisite to, you know, faith, but out of an overflow of a heart of gratitude for what Christ has done for you. And so fight. God is worthy of your obedience. And joy's waiting, friends. Joy's waiting. So fight. This is the right use of the law. 
It reveals. It exposes. It leads us to Christ. And then after salvation, it serves us in sanctification for the glory of God and the joy of our own hearts and souls. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would use the wall rightly. Father, we pray, I pray that it would humble us. And that we would never come to a place because we are always fighting our sin. We would never come to a place where we begin to use the wall as justification, as for moral superiority to someone else. If that's what happens, we have not understood the law at all. And in fact, may not even be a believer. The wall decimates self-righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that if maybe we have, some of us in here have grown a root of self-righteousness, that you would... Terminate that in us, even now. And we repent of that. Father, for those of us who maybe have thought we could just completely ignore the Old Testament law, since we are no longer under law, we're under grace. I pray that you would help us to understand that we're not under the legal demands of the law to, for our justification. But the law of Christ is... The same thing is the moral law of God. And so we are to obey. And so forgive us, those of us who have given in to a spirit of antinomianism. And just a complete disregard. Oh, God will forgive me anyhow. I might as well just go ahead. Father, I pray that you would help us to fight. To fight sin. To fight for your glory displayed in our lives which is at the, at simultaneously the greatest joy we could ever have. Because we're following you. And your ways are better than our ways. Help us to believe this. And help us even as we sang earlier to see you are better. You are better than anything else, any other God replacement that tries to take us and make us worshipers of it. You are better. You are better. As we sing, deal with us individually that we might be transformed to be more like you day by day. In Christ's name, amen.